Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy hump day to you. I'm going to get you a little behind the scenes, behind the curtain here a little bit, how, how the show comes together and how, uh, how yesterday sort of played out. I was very close to not getting this show produced and on the America One radio uh, broadcast in time. I mean, it was by the skin of my teeth. I don't even know how I did it. Um, it was very close. And then to, to go through all that, the adrenaline of, ooh, just barely made it. And as soon as I, I got done the last segment, shipped it, and show's over, and I can calm down and relax and take my shoes off and head, head the earbuds are out of the ears, and I'm just sitting down, and I decide for the first time all day, I'm going to turn the TV on. That's kind of how I do it, by the way. I don't turn the TV on usually until uh, it's time for Lester Holt. <clears throat> but I started getting notifications on my phone. Colorado Supreme Court, Trump disqualified. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I get I get on uh, television and uh, immediately CNBC pops up and this is what I get. Colorado Supreme Court ruling that former President Trump's candidacy in the state's primary next year prohibited on constitutional grounds. The ruling coming from a provision of the 14th Amendment, which prohibits officers of the United States from holding office. if They've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. The Colorado High Court agreeing with a lower court ruling that President Trump incited and encouraged the use of violence on January 6, 2021. It overturned the lower court's ruling, finding that the president is an officer of the country that elected him and barred him uh, from being named to the Colorado primary ballot. Now, the court put its action on hold until January 4th to allow for further appeals. A spokesperson for the Trump campaign bashing the ruling and signaling that an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was forthcoming. Republican presidential hopefuls weighing in on that decision. Vivek Ramaswamy uh, pledging to withdraw his name from the Colorado ballot himself. Okay, so you won't finish fifth in that state? Big deal. Unless Trump's name is restored. Uh, Let's show you some reaction, though, from Nikki Haley and Chris Christie from separate campaign events last night. I don't think Donald Trump needs to be president. I think I need to be president. I think that's good for the country. But I will beat him fair and square. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have to make these decisions. I do not believe Donald Trump should be prevented from being president of the United States by any court. I think he should be prevented from being president of the United States by the voters of this country. I just find it interesting that the, the same party that let a court decide who was going to win the year 2000 presidential election. Make no mistake, that's what happened. 23 years later, has decided, yeah, we don't want the courts involved in this. Okay, back to CNBC and Andrew Ross Sorkin, right? Is that his name? Meantime, Ron DeSantis criticizing the ruling in a post on X and said the U.S. Supreme Court should reverse that decision. Democratic candidate RFK Jr. posted on X that every American should be troubled by the court's decision to remove President Trump from that ballot and said it deprives the American people of their right to choose. Number one, RFK's running as an independent. Didn't he decide that that's what he was going to do now? So, uh, sorry, Mr. Sorkin, it's not a Democrat anymore. Uh, also, Mr. Kennedy, the American people already don't get to choose who the president is. Remember, it's the electoral college. Okay, so a few things. First of all, the six Colorado voters who filed this lawsuit back in September 
Here are three of them. Claudine Schneider, a registered Republican who represented a congressional district uh, from 1981 to 1991 out of the state of Rhode Island before relocating. You have uh, Norma Anderson, who served as majority leader in the Colorado House and Senate. Uh, Krista Kafer, a conservative columnist for the Denver Post, who said she was going to vote for Trump in 2020. Conservatives brought this case to court, making it all the way to the Colorado Supreme Court. Now, granted, this was on MSNBC last night, but I'm watching uh, The 11th Hour with Stephanie Rule. Can I be honest? I don't know why, but I'm not fond of... I'm not gonna, uh, I don't watch her very often. There, I said it. Um, anyway, uh, J. Michael Luddick, a conservative judge, a conservative judge on MSNBC, he was a, a former federal judge. He applauded the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to disqualify the former president. Said it was masterful, brilliant, unassailable. Here's what he had to say. Uh, yes, uh, th- thank you for having on me on with you tonight, Stephanie. Um, I- I'm not shocked at all, and, 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 and nor, I think, are, are the lawyers and others who have followed this case and the others uh, in the other states uh, in recent weeks and months. Uh, the, as the, your viewers know, the lower court in Colorado had actually held that the former president had engaged in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution uh, of the United States uh, with his conduct um, before and on and after January 6. But the lower court had held that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, the so-called disqualification clause of the, of the Constitution, doesn't apply to presidents. Mm. Uh, the, today's decision by the Colorado Supreme Court affirmed the lower court's decision that the former president had engaged in an insurrection or rebellion, mm-hmm. But it reversed the lower court's decision that the 14th Amendment does not apply uh, to presidents and therefore the former president uh, whose disqualification uh, was at issue. Uh, But uh, this is not a political decision, uh, Stephanie. It's a uh, this is an opinion of constitutional law. Uh, it has nothing to do with politics, and, and uh, I've, I've heard some commentators tonight uh, jump to the conclusion that this is a political decision by a liberal state Supreme Court. Which it is. Uh, there's, it couldn't be anything further from the truth than that. The, the opinion by the, the Colorado Supreme Court was a masterful judicial opinion of constitutional law on the applicability of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, It will uh, stand the test of time, uh, uh, as they say. Uh, And uh, uh, I I think that the Supreme Court of the United States ought to affirm this decision. And based on the objective law in this instance, the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, I believe the U.S. Supreme Court will affirm this decision. Now, there are those right out the gate who are saying, no, it's a 6-3 conservative U.S. Supreme Court, but hold the phone. 
if there's anything that we've learned in the last mm, 40 or so years, if you follow the Supreme Court from a partisan spectrum, from any perspective one way or the other, it's that it doesn't matter. Well, I, I say it matters less when a Republican president appoints someone to the bench as to whether or not that justice is going to stay ideologically aligned with conservative politicians. <laughs> no. I mean, we just, we just, we just laid to rest Sandra Day O'Connor who bucked conservatives enough and kept Roe v. Wade, the law of the land for an additional 20, 30 years or so. I could totally see the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court reach a 7-2 to decision to affirm the Colorado Supreme Court's case. But I also agree with J. Michael Luddick in that this is not a political decision. Sure, the Colorado Supreme Court is stacked with liberal justices, no doubt about it. But again, this was a lawsuit brought by a group of conservative voters one being a political pundit, two, I believe, being former office holders who were Republican. And I also happen to think that this does not benefit the Democratic Party in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I really don't. I've said this all along, and, and polls bear this out. Just about anybody, well, I say that other than Vivek Ramaswamy, just about anybody on the dais at a GOP primary, polls better against the sitting president of the United States running for re-election, Joe Biden, than Donald Trump does. Nikki Haley will be the first to tell you that. She polls better against Joe Biden than Donald Trump. The same could be said for Ron DeSantis. Much to my chagrin. He polls better against Joe Biden head-to-head than Donald Trump does. This doesn't help the Democratic Party in any way, shape, form, or fashion. This is about constitutionality versus, I'll say it, treason. And the Supreme Court also has the tricky decision of whether or not to grant Donald Trump the same rights they're also going to concurrently grant Joe Biden right now. If the Supreme Court says, no, it's blank check, it's carte blanche, whatever, whatever a president wants to do while in office cannot be held against him or her, even after they're in office, well, w- what stops Joe Biden from doing the same thing for the remainder of his term? Yeah, that's the tricky part. Go ahead, do it. I mean, here, here's the difference. The, the difference is, I, I don't care how bad things get. I've seen enough of Joe Biden over the course of his political career to know he'd never stoop to the level of Donald Trump with his insurrectious tantrum throwing from November 2020 through January 2021. Joe Biden's a better man. It's inarguable. He's a better man, a better human being, an arbiter of our process. Oh, you know what? I just it just dawned on me too. I sit here and said that this I could see this being a seven two decision uh, in favor of the Colorado Supreme Court. I, I actually should have said seven one 
because it's pretty clear that Justice Clarence Thomas, through the antics and actions of his wife, Jenny, should have to recuse himself. And I haven't even brought up the fact that that man is bought and paid for by billionaires who have a vested interest in seeing a Republican return to the White House. I won't even bring that up as part of, because that's not, it's not, but his wife, Jenny Thomas, and her antics and activism trying to keep Donald Trump in office, despite the fact that he clearly lost the 2020 presidential election, should mean that one Clarence Thomas should have to recuse himself once this case comes before the court. Just another little sidebar nugget to this entire spectacle. All right, a little later in the show, pro-Palestinian protesters come to a small bar in Atlanta to rankle some Democrats' feathers. I go pro and con on both sides of this. The Ron Show, back in just a few on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. By the way, if you have those conservative friends, whether it be in person or on social media, and they give you the unelected judges conversation after Donald Trump has been found to be disqualified by the Colorado Supreme Court. Here's the problem. Colorado's judges are not unelected. Now, I don't expect you or I to have just known, or, or your conservative friends to have known that just off the cuff. But if, say, your conservative friend were a Harvard Law graduate, wouldn't you expect them to know that? I expect Kaylee McEnany to know that. Here she was subbing for Sean Hannity last night on Fox News. This amendment disqualifies sworn officials who allegedly, quote, engaged in insurrection. In other words, four unelected judges are trying to preempt the will of voters, the will of the people of Colorado. And it's all in the name of democracy. Okay, I kind of want to pivot real quick to something that uh, NBC News finally brought some legacy media, mainstream media spotlight to, and it's the growth of Prager University for kids, literally Prager University being brought into our public school curriculum. And if you don't know what Prager U is, let me let this NBC News story give you a little background. Tonight we're looking at an educational video series raising some concerns. It's gaining hold in a number of states, but critics say the videos are a tool to push a political agenda. Antonia Hilton has our reporting. What does it mean to be feminine? Your kids may have seen these videos online. Embrace the idea of being a wife or a mother. Educational videos on everything from culture to history to climate. Without fossil fuels, much of the world's population would starve to death in a year. This is PragerU, not an actual accredited university, but rather a, quote, pro-American education nonprofit with growing school partnerships in New Hampshire, Florida, and Oklahoma. Which, by the way, I have to believe that Dennis Prager, who is the the, the spearhead of this entire re-education movement, he, he has to be even surprised himself that this is getting accepted by public schools. I'm sure he thought the home school, the cottage homeschool industry would be where he would make his fortune on this. But public schools are taking this crap in. All right, let me let uh, the rest of the story play out. It's called edutainment. According to CEO Marissa Strait, 
Their videos are an answer to an education system too focused on diversity and gender. In this Los Angeles studio, PragerU's artists focus on American exceptionalism. They feel like they're serving on the front lines of saving the war of ideas in America. Since the pandemic, PragerU says it has more than doubled revenue and reached nearly 10 billion views of their videos. Founder Dennis Prager has been a controversial radio show host for years. If you're spending a good part of the day teaching kids about preferred pronouns and other what we call woke issues, then you, you're really not teaching them. What I hear from teachers of every background is that they are slammed from block to block. They are underpaid, they are underappreciated, and that they don't even have time to talk about pronouns, right. gender theory, critical race right. theory. You can point I don't to believe here that there. they're telling you the truth. <laughs> I actually think they're lying to you. Okay, so big bloated radio conservative guy who hasn't set his wobbly fat ass in a school in how many decades? knows better than the reporter who is probably the mother of children. Okay. In Oklahoma, some teachers like Gabe Woolley are using PragerU in the classroom. Stunning. We watched Prager's video. Here's the first thing you need to know. A short history of slavery together. After centuries of human slavery, white men led the world in putting an end to the abhorrent practice. <laughs> oh She's giving credit mostly to white people right now for ending it right. before, before the acknowledgement of the pain that some of your students might actually know about and feel in their families, right? Right. And there's a lot of content that we cover that does cover that aspect. But what we almost never talk about is the reality of slavery happening almost since the beginning of time to the end of time. A few minutes down the road, families like the Reyes, who are a mix of white, Choctaw, and Mexican-American, say the broader culture war playing out in schools is hurting teachers. We trust our people. Right. We trust our educators. Like we said, I mean, these are this is our community. We showed them some of PragerU's videos designed for kids. 300,000 Union soldiers, overwhelmingly white, who died what? during the Civil War. Zoe is in fifth grade. Something that I noticed was no other culture did anything. No other culture died. No other culture tried to stop slavery. Which I know that isn't true. That's extremely concerning to me because it's, you know, so much inaccuracy um, with things. The fifth grade girl knew what was bullshit. And, and what does it matter? Over 300,000 Union troops, most of them white. What, what, what does that matter that most of them, what? We go back now to ask Dennis Prager what he envisions the ideal American education system looking like. What would a good American education system look like to you? Like it did in, in the 1930s, mm -hmm. minus uh, any uh, anything that was uh, offensive. All the bad like, things going yeah, on yeah, in the 1930s. Yeah, you're right, minus, minus the bad things. Yes, that's correct. First of all, that man has no business trying to educate kids whatsoever. Second of all, because he doesn't seem to know much about history in the United States in the 1930s, back when school was a luxury for low- and middle-class kids when school buses were a rarity because of a thing called the Depression, because kids weren't even required to attend school, and many didn't, and instead chose to work because, again, the Great Depression. Listen, I, I've known that the whole Prager U for Kids thing has been slowly creeping into our public school curriculum in a few pockets here and there. 
I'm really glad NBC News brought this to light because this is an important story. And really, that story could not have come out at a better time. By better time, I mean days after somebody said this. You know, when they let, I think the real number is 15, 16 million people into our country. When they do that, we got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's mm. what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. Uh, the crime is going to be tremendous. The terrorism is going to be, terrorism is going to be, and then we built a tremendous piece of the wall, and then we're going to build more. He listed every continent except Europe and Australia, by the way. I don't even know that you can call that coded language anymore because it's just so obvious what he's saying. It defies logic that he gains any percentage of voters that are non-white. I, I don't get it. I get that Latino voters, black voters, Asian voters are not a monolith. But for this one political candidate, y'all, what the hell? Back after this. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more, all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Welcome back. Uh, I kind of want to stick to the whole white-centric America first scope that the right has been laser-focused on. Uh, it used to be very subtle. Dog-whistling, I called it for most of the last 40 or 50 years or so. But now it's just blatant. It's just overt. And we are seeing some important foreign policy get gummed up by the right's focus to be xenophobic and myopic at the same time, completely lacking in a base knowledge of American history in the Western Hemisphere. But it's not just those on the right. I see folks caving on the left, too. Moderates uh, hand-wringing about the Ukraine aid and the Israeli aid. Listen, I get it. I get it. Volodymyr Zelensky needs, his troops need more ammunition. They're going to spend a, a lot of time in cold trenches without a lot of ammunition, having to get by on what they have until we can get an aid package to them. I don't know how much credit they have that they can just Go to their suppliers and say, it's coming. <laughs> the same for the Israelis, although we've handed billions over, hand over fist for decades now. Um, and, I, and I tell the, the, those who are pro-Palestinian, the, the protesters, we, since October 7th, have not doled out a single dime in extra aid. So, uh, and, and I, let's put a pin in that because I do want to have this discussion about uh, pro-Palestinian po protest and, and those who are angry at uh, Joe Biden. On the one hand, I don't get it. On the other hand, I kind of hear what you're saying, but again, another uh, another topic uh, on another segment or maybe later in this one. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of this stuff on social media. Oh, Senate Democrats, they, they, they got to stop wasting time, agree to a deal on immigration reform to get that Ukraine-Israeli aid out. Um. The thing is, Republicans aren't pushing for immigration reform. The, the system needs reforming in a bad way. It's, it's underfunded. It's long been underfunded and understaffed. And 
doesn't answer to modern needs. It, it also doesn't provide a tangible path to citizenship for a country that needs more immigrants and does better when we take in more immigrants. We have whole swaths of the country that complete ghost towns that would love to have some sort of a system put in place where new immigrants are encouraged to settle in and start working in, grow a family in, put roots in. It, it just makes no sense that we don't do this. We had a labor shortage during the whole supply chain crunch at the end of the COVID pandemic. And we had 15,000, was it uh, Haitian refugees? Was it Haitian, I think? I think it was Haitian. And we, we didn't have folks working docks uh, at the point at the time. And uh, we had ships, cargo ships lined up uh, at our ports waiting to be unloaded or having to drift out uh, far from the port a little ways just because they, they had nobody at a port to unload. And we had 15,000 Haitian refugees who were like, uh, I'd like to earn a way of life into this country. If you don't mind, please. And thank you. Republicans don't want to reform immigration. They want to essentially cherry pick where immigrants can come from, and they can't come from south of the United States. Any capitulation to white nationalism and overt dissonance to the realities in Latin America because of a century plus of our role in destabilizing the rest of the Western Hemisphere and, by the way, climate change? To me, it's it's a non-starter. And I would say I'm surprised that Republicans are willing to toy with the existence of the Ukraine or Israel, but I mean, they'll put the full faith and credit of the United States on the line uh, to, to make these principled stands, they call them, all the time. So I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by any of this. So much of what ails us now with regards to our problems at the southern border. And I readily admit, yeah, there are problems. And I, for the life of me, don't understand why President Biden or Kamala Harris or both, I mean, she was dispatched to be vital in this process here, right? Or, or, or the Democratic Party on the whole doesn't do a better job of explaining to the American people why we are where we are. I mean, there have been Nearly five dozen military interventions, U.S. military interventions throughout South and Central America since the start of the 20th century in Chile, in Panama, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Cuba, Haiti, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, four times, Venezuela, Grenada, actually four times in Haiti all total, eight times in Honduras, eight times in Nicaragua, nine times in Panama, twice in Chile. We, we, we've done a lot of meddling. And, and also, let's bear in mind, and it's, this isn't just limited to the Western Hemisphere, our red scare, our petulant fear of communism or socialism, as is happening right now in Venezuela, just as we did in Iran in the 1950s, we are meddling in the affairs of Venezuela now. And I don't want to hear all this talk about, oh, you know, dictator. You know what? We like dictators until we don't like dictators. We like dictators when they see things our way to make our way of life better. And listen, 
I'm not sitting here saying being pro-American is a bad thing. I'm saying you have to understand that to to live a comfortable life in the United States shouldn't come at the expense of the quality of life of folks elsewhere. I mean, we can all agree on that, right? And if we can't, then you and I aren't going to see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. Sorry, not sorry. I love living in this country. I love being able to come home and on a cold day, turn my heat on and know that it's, it's coming, whether it be fossil fuel or solar power or whatever. But I'm going to have a hard time pursuing a policy knowing it's at the expense of other human beings elsewhere. And, and, and this, is, this is where I have a hard time sort of tying uh, conservatives to, to their own ideology. You're, you're pro-life, but it's got to be pro-American life, and it's got to be in the womb, but not when it's a child and needs uh, Medicaid. Georgia, third worst in the country for Medicaid and kids. Uh, we have a long history in this country of decrying things like communism and socialism because obviously we prefer capitalism. Uh, obviously, but you know what? The dirty little secret in America is we actually like socialism too. Public schools, postal service, uh, infrastructure, infrastructure maintenance, uh, just to name a few. We love so- social security. We get to a certain age, Medicare. We like socialism. We like socialism, particularly when it helps capitalism, publicly funded stadia and arenas, tax incentive districts, subsidies. We love socialism when it benefits capitalism. When it benefits icky poors, ugh. people of color, got to cut that. And I'm not going to sit here and defend Venezuela's leadership or anything like that, but let, let's keep in mind that we don't exactly help the people of Venezuela by punishing the notion of socialism or the existence of to try and prove a point that we think socialism is inferior, when again, we in America actually kind of like it, and polls show we'd like more of it. I mean, we, we just become a chief driver of that nation's instability. And where are a lot of the folks coming uh, to our southern border coming from? Venezuela. Guatemala. By the way, did you know when you go to buy Chiquita bananas, Chiquita can be traced back to a company called United Fruit Company who participated in a coup in Guatemala in the 1950s? That's not even a U.S. military intervention. That doesn't, that doesn't come onto the list, the 56 U.S. military interventions. When you type in a Google, 56 U.S. military interventions in Latin America. United Fruit Company doesn't even come up. But they participated in a coup because democratically elected leadership in Guatemala was coming after their profit margin. Not their profits, their profit margin. This is another one of those cases where Democrats poll poorly, by the way, on immigration. They, they do. They poll poorly on immigration. And I don't think it has so much to do with their ideology, the substance of their ideology, as much as I think it has more to do with their inability to explain their position and how Band-Aids, like The Wall, or these quick-fix immigration tightenings 
don't solve the crisis. Making it tougher to get into this country doesn't stop the fact that there are economic and even criminal instabilities in Central and South American countries, or that climate change is sending people scattering, not just in the Western Hemisphere, but around the globe for safer places to live. How does tightening our border fix any of that? Well, it doesn't. But if those folks don't inconvenience us by showing up at our southern border and instead just stay where they are and live a shorter, miserable life and or die, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. It's like uh, what Caitlyn Jenner said about homeless people in California. Do you think Caitlyn Jenner ever gave a rat's ass about homelessness in California until Caitlyn Jenner started seeing homeless people just outside Caitlyn's gated community? Ooh, ooh, gotta hide that. Get that out of my face. Um, do you have a plan for solving homelessness? Oh no, but I, I'm tired of seeing it. Unlike Donald Trump, I don't see these folks as lesser people or poisoning our blood. They're just lesser priorities to an American culture that is inconvenienced by the evidence of our past and still current, sometimes foreign policy and environmental policy misdeeds. And I can't help but point out that the ideological side of our political spectrum that makes the most noise about not wanting to see the repercussions are the ones most guilty of what causes the instability that brings people to our southern border and into our American states. Great example. Uh, President Eisenhower's Operation, pardon the phrase, Operation Wetback. What a racist name that was. Rounding up of like uh, uh, 1.2 million, 1.3 million uh, uh, non-resident Mexican folks, sending them back to Mexico. Well, part of that was the fact that uh, Mexico had a labor shortage. They needed workers. And so Eisenhower's like, got say no more, fam. Let me go get some. And there was that, that huge roundup. You know what there wasn't much of a roundup of? The American men or women or companies that hired the undocumented employee. Mm -hmm. You ever hear stories of people who hire undocumented laborers going to prison, having their assets seized by the government? Yeah, me neither. But wouldn't that be a deterrent to anyone else thinking about hiring undocumented laborers? Right? And if you can't hire undocumented laborers and those who are coming across our border to do undocumented labor realize that there's no market for their services, aren't they less prone to crossing the border for the under the table labor? Isn't that a solution? Why why has the right never pitched that? Is it because Many of those who do the hiring might actually vote more their way. Now, listen, I have absolutely no idea what it is Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer are working towards, but I know with a GOP-led House, uh, 
a very slim majority in the Senate necessitating some compromise from the left to get anything done, and a president who uh, not only has his eyes on re-election, but also aiding Ukraine. I would say more so than Israel, but definitely both. That there's going to be more capitulation on the left than on the right. Unfortunate because these are not going to be tangible long-term solutions towards solving our immigration crisis. Then again, as I've stated before, I don't think Republicans are interested in solving our immigration crisis long-term. I think they just like pleasing their base, who also have no interest in long-term solutions. They just want to stop being inconvenienced. It's a dicey proposition for Democrats heading into the 2024 cycle, where they're already starting to see erosion with African-American voters uh, with now you, you've got uh, Muslim American voters hand-wringing over the Israeli-Palestinian fight. This is another one of those scenarios where Democrats may have to uh, appeal to Latino American voters, who again, we see a little bit of degradation and decay, and, and, and appeal to them and say, okay, listen, this isn't optimal but read the room. Do you not see what we're having to deal with here? And look at the alternative. I've been appealing that same thought process to the Islamic American voter as well. Okay, I get it. You're not happy with the way Biden has weighed in on Israel and Palestine, but look at the alternative. Okay, back after this. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Wednesday. I nearly fell out of my seat this morning when I saw this piece from... uh, all ends Chris Hayes uh, from MSNBC on X. In my mind, this is the first time I've seen someone with any cachet in mainstream media discuss Israel-Palestine, I should say Israel-Gaza, from this point of view. Stunned. Listen. But that aside, the deeper problem here is that if you spend any time at all reading the Israeli press, listening to what Israeli leaders and commentators are actually saying, it is very clear that for a lot of people in government, the mass destruction of Gaza, raising it like Putin raised Grozny or Assad raised Aleppo, is the point, the goal. Many prominent members of the Israeli governing class don't think there is such a thing as an innocent civilian in Gaza, have said that everyone in Gaza deserves their fate. From Knesset member, mayor of Ben Ari, saying that, quote, the children of Gaza have brought this upon themselves. Wow to an Israeli military spokesman saying the emphasis of Israel's military campaign was, quote, on damage and not on accuracy, Mm. to Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, suggesting there are no civilians in Gaza and everyone is a legitimate target, to journalist Shimon Ricklin, who said this on Israeli TV. I am for the war crimes. I don't care if I'm criticized. And I honestly don't care. I'm unable to sleep if I do not see houses being destroyed in Gaza. What do I say? More houses. More houses. More buildings. I want to see more of them destroyed. I want there to be nothing for them. That's not a fringe view in Israel. I mean, even the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, invoked the lessons from the biblical story of Amalek in address the nation in Hebrew in the end of October. And in that biblical chapter, God commands King Saul on how to respond to an attack by the rival kingdom of Amalek. Quote, now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Mm. Now, I will be the first to confess, the first to confess, I have no idea what to do about Hamas or about what comes next. But the Amalek method cannot be the solution. 
to be honest, I'm not particularly convinced the Israeli leadership has any idea what comes next. Mm. Many want full destruction. And, and Hamas also wants this war. They have been clear on that. I think they want it to continue. They seem to think all of this death and destruction benefits in the end because of the rage it will produce towards Israel. But whatever your views on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it is just plainly the case that our country is supporting a war whose animating moral logic looks to most of the world and frankly to me to be that every single last person in Gaza is guilty and deserves their lot. And that is the moral logic of Hamas. It is the moral logic that drove the atrocity of October 7th. Mm -hmm. And an atrocity like October 7th does not cannot justify whatever comes after it, whatever the response. There is no terrorist attack, no matter how horrific, and truly October 7th was horrific, that can wash clean what we are seeing in Gaza and what we as Americans and our government are abetting. It must end. We must stop it. And then I see last night from the Atlanta Community Press Collective on Twitter X, Breaking, protesters are disrupting the Fulton County Democratic Party Club's annual holiday party at Manuel's Tavern. They are chanting, we won't vote for Genocide Joe. Joe, we now, if you ask me, I think one of the wrong responses to a protest like that is what you get from the Sandy Springs city captain for the Fulton County Democratic Party, Seth Taylor, who I've never met. I'm sure he's a nice guy. Welcome on the show anytime you'd like. Um, he's tweeting uh, last night, protesters disrupted our county party holiday happy hour at Manuel's Tavern while chanting from the river to the sea. I roll emoji twice. Police thankfully showed up and they scrammed. That was just on his Twitter post. He also uh, called them clowns, and that's where I, I kind of think you, you have to like pump the brakes just a little bit, and we, we can't be the party of the, the, the trope, the coastal elites, the wine and cheese, liberal, et cetera, and so on, without realizing, again, you're heading into an election cycle, and we're going to need every vote left of center to keep... A man who stated he wants to be a dictator just for a day, if reelected to the office of the presidency. I mean, I get it. You don't like the chant, the river to the sea. I get it. Even that is a matter of perspective. How you hear it is how you interpret it, depending on how you see this fight. And taking things to a, a, an extremely literal point is gonna cause you to be butthurt i'm not saying that there aren't those who say it who aren't being anti-semitic but i am saying there are those who say it not to be anti-semitic the clan quoted the bible does that make the bible a clan tool and i also have to admit like my initial reaction to the protest was oh okay um it's not gonna get you a whole lot of attention and it didn't uh i understand the protest and i understand wanting to bring some awareness to local Democrats. Not that at the Fulton County or state level, even that Democrats have a whole lot of impact. And again, we're in a purple state that Joe Biden won by 11,000 votes. So consider the alternative. 
But I do understand wanting to put pressure on the president. I don't think Manuel's Tavern was going to do that. But I do understand wanting to raise some concerns about uh, the U.S. fighting U.N. resolutions to call for a ceasefire. I'm a little concerned about that, too. Why? I mean, it's a, it's a U.N. resolution. It's not like we're going to send in peacekeeping forces to force a ceasefire on Israel. It's just a resolution. And we say we do want to stop the fighting. Joe Biden has all but said he wants a near-immediate drawdown. Like, literally, by the end of the calendar year, that's what he's called for. What really sucks is, like, this is not a problem that Joe Biden's making. It's just a problem that Joe Biden has to address because he is the occupant of the White House. He is the President of the United States. And there's really no way to make everyone happy. Good luck, my man. <laughs> and you want to do this again? I do. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Show notes and more, we've got them for you. RonShowATL.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Have a good one.